again. And the Bible reading for this morning is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 to 14. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This, too, is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom is like an inheritance. Sorry, wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom perseveres those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. Thanks, good. Good morning, everyone. Nice to see you this morning. We're continuing our trudge through Ecclesiastes. And this morning we are into the middle low point of the book. Poor Solomon, I think, plunges into the pit of depression, heads downhill. By chapter 7, which is where we begin to get to this morning, just the first half of it, he starts to climb out of it, starts feeling better, and he starts writing about better things. But in 5 and 6, he sort of has some very sad observations on life. So pray with me, and then let's jump in together. Thank you, Father, again for this opportunity. Could you please take your word and enlighten us, teach us, if necessary, convict us, challenge us, change us, that we might be good disciples, strong followers of the Lord Jesus, who live lives of obedience and are desiring to please you. So, Father, speak to us, we pray. And everybody said, if we could be richer, we would be happier. Do you agree? Many in Australia think that, many in the Western world think exactly that, because that's how they live. If only we could be richer, then we would be happier. And I see there's only about half a dozen of you who disagree with that. The other half obviously must agree with that. Maybe. Um, my mum, I can remember, saying to me many, many, many times, when I win the lottery, then we'll be able to do this, this and this. It was almost the mantra that I grew up under. <clears throat> and uh, she used to buy, every week, a lottery ticket. Guess what happened in 60 years? She never won the lottery. So we'll never know, will we? Um, 
Which is better off, to be rich or to be poor? If you had to make a choice. Neither. Better off dead. Solomon says that at one point. We'll come to that in a moment. I know a couple in Sydney, <clears throat> Christians, born-again Christians, attended a Presbyterian church, that doesn't matter, they lived in Ashfield. And they came into a very substantial inheritance, changed their lives for the worse. Instead of both going to church in the morning, instead of both going out, instead of both being in a Bible study group and doing all those things together and serving in the church, one of them was in a choir and they would attend that on a Wednesday night or whatever. And, but when they came into this very wealthy inheritance, they, had, they paid off their debts and there were things they wanted to purchase and update their car and all those sorts of things, and they did. Then suddenly they were putting security um, shutters on their outdoor windows and there was a gate at the front of the property and... They never, no longer went to church as a couple. He would go in the morning, she would go at night. She would continue to go to Wednesday night by herself for the, uh, for the choir practice, but they didn't go to ministries together anymore. They, one would go, the other one would stay home. Why? They had been transformed and they were now very anxious about all of the stuff that they now had that they might get robbed. So they had to have always someone at home to protect it. That's a common experience. The people who come into, people who win the lottery, or people who come into a wealthy inheritance, that their lives sometimes are changed by it, but not for the better, but for the worse. That's not always true, but it's so often true. Eight people, well, for the, in London, the people who won the last eight lotteries were um, followed up, and to find out if they were happier, better off, or worse off. Five out of the eight were unhappy and the other three out of the eight were still struggling to cope with it. They were more anxious, they were more suspicious, they didn't know how to handle the wealth that they had inherited. So, is it better to be rich or poor? That's what Solomon's looking at. They did a survey back in 1985 in the United States of America, so we are safe and protected, it's not, we're not the mad Americans. Their survey was along the lines of, if you, what would you do for $10 million? What would you be, and there was a list of things you could select from and you could make your own comments or your own choices or whatever. For $10 million, what would you be prepared to do? Think about that. $10 million. It's a lot of dollars. I read you the results. See if you would go, yeah, I'd do that. 25% said they would abandon their family. 25%. One in four. <clears throat> They're going to live alone. Be isolated. No family. Would you do that? Depends on the family, doesn't it? 25% said they would abandon their church. They would walk away from the faith. They wouldn't just change churches. They'd not go to church anymore. They wouldn't believe in Jesus anymore. They'd give up their faith. $10 million. Well, you know people and so do I. They've done that, but not for $10 million. 23% said they would become a prostitute for one week. It's only a week. $10 million. It's amazing, isn't it? 16% said they would give up their citizenship. 16% said they would leave their spouse. I checked with Rhonda in the first service. 
I'm in trouble. As she left, I asked her, what would you do with the 10 million? She had a list. I'll talk to her when I get home. 10% of the people said they would, they would withhold uh, testimony in a court of law against a murder. If they witnessed a murder, that they wouldn't go to court and testify. They'd let the murderer go free for $10 million. Their silence could be bought. 7% said they would kill a stranger. Well, that's possible. I've got a list of people I wouldn't mind bumping off. Don't you? 10 million. Or you might identify with this one. Only 3% said that they would put the kids up for adoption. Possibility? The assumption is, of course, for these people, that $10 million would make their life better, more comfortable, nicer in every way. Well, that's the issue Solomon's going to take us through this morning. Solomon loved gold. He was a very wealthy man. And his annual income was $20 million in gold alone. He had other sources of income. He was getting a lot more than that. He had everything. I mean, the chariot that he rode in had a number plate that said number one. And that was probably in gold as well. So Solomon was a man who was very acquainted with wealth, what it's like to have everything that money can buy, no exceptions. So his perspective on the value of money or wealth or possessions or honour is worth listening to. And in chapter 5 is where he starts this very deep dive into these sorts of issues. So we're going to go to chapter 5 and start at verse 8. And we'll make about four points, I think, through chapter 5 and three or four in chapter 6 and then race through what we read of chapter 7. That's where we're going. So seatbelts on. Chapter 5, verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district, see the poor, and justice and their rights are denied, don't be surprised at such things. Because one official is eyed by a higher one and over them there are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. What's he saying? Pretty much, poverty is everywhere. You'll see it. You'll see injustice. Don't be surprised by it. Expect it. It's part of what it's like to live in a fallen world. You'll observe government officials, you know, abusing the poor and those who are under them, they're in authority. They'll be lining their own pockets. They'll be doing all the things that they possibly can for their own benefit. We know what that's like. We observe that as well in the world. So don't be surprised by that. That's the world in which we live. And Jesus said we would always have the poor with us, but that doesn't mean when you see it, you ignore it. It's rather when you see it, respond to it and try to help, but be aware of the fact you're never going to stop it. You're never going to, excuse me, cure it. It will always be with us. That's the first thing he wants to say, that if you had multi-million dollars and you gave it all away, there would still be poor people and there would still be injustice in the world. So that's not the solution. He goes on. Prosperity or wealth will never ultimately satisfy us, verse 10 to 12. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. It's true, isn't it? Us, the millionaires who keep making millions every year, us, Gina Reinhardt, Australia's wealthiest person, whose wealth has, I think, nearly doubled this year, even through COVID. How many more millions do you need? Answer? Just one more. Just keeps coming. Prosperity will never satisfy us. Verse 10, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income because they love money, they love wealth. It's meaningless. 
As goods increase, so do those people who hang around and consume it. And what benefits are there to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? So with the increase in wealth comes also an increase in burdens and dangers and fears. Verse 12, the sleep of a labourer is sweet whether they eat little or much. They've worked hard and they sleep well at night, but for the rich, their abundance permits them no rest, no sleep. They're anxious, they're uptight about their possessions. So prosperity will never satisfy us. Don't misunderstand Solomon what he's saying. Wealth is not evil. Money is not bad. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches the opposite. The diligent hands will result in the making of profit and wealth and so on. It's the love of money. It's the, almost the adoration of wealth, the finding your hope and security in wealth or prosperity that is the problem. But there's nothing wrong with... There are many godly people who are also very wealthy people. And Deuteronomy 8.12 reminds us that when they go into the land and they, they prosper and they um, make money and wealth and they're secure in the land, then don't forget that it is the Lord your God who gives you the ability to succeed, who gives you the ability to do well. It's God at work through you. God not only gives the prosperity, but he also gives... A blessing with it as Solomon will tell us about in a moment. So wealth is not evil, God enables us to be productive and to grow but it's quite possible you have it all but you're not satisfied because that's where your focus is, that's his point and it's the wrong focus. In fact prosperity can even ruin us, he'll go on to say, verses 13 to 17, sent a very grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded by, to the harm of its owners or wealth lost through some sudden turn of events and misfortune. So that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. The reality is everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since for all their toil, for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration and affliction. <clears throat> Having money can ruin you because sometimes it can be suddenly disappear from you and you'll be grief stricken. Money is a very good servant, but it's a very poor master. If you control it, that's fine. But if it's controlling you, there is an issue. Because the, the more you have and the more you think you deserve it or you did it and it's yours, and the more you stand to lose when it goes, and it will eventually go. It may not go in this life, but it will go at the end of life. So working to make money is working to make something that you will eventually lose. It doesn't make sense. That's what Solomon is saying to us. Think about this. Think about the orientation of your life. Paul says the same thing whether he was reading Ecclesiastes or not, I don't know. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. The love of money. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. When that becomes our focus, tragedy can happen, both in our walk with Jesus, but also in other aspects of our lives, griefs and so on. Verse 17 of the chapter says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, but to or, nor to put their hope in wealth, 
because that's so uncertain. Here today, gone tomorrow. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Put our hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. God provides and God wants us to enjoy it. And God will hold us responsible, not only for enjoying it, but for the way that we use it. It's entrusted to us. And if we hang on to it for ourselves, and wealth, in fact, can ruin us and bring harm to us. He goes on to say at the end of the chapter, verses 18 to 20, that having the right focus, the right priority, will protect us, will preserve us. This is what I've observed to be good, he says, verse 18. It's appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, find satisfaction in your toilsome labour under the sun during the few days that God has given them, for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and be happy in their toil, this is the gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. God gives us stuff, but the gift of God is also enjoyment. That too is from God. And as he'll go on to say in the very next chapter, he doesn't give that to everybody. And that is a great loss. Contentment. Psalm 23 verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Beginning of this century, when people wanted, could write down the list of the things that they would want in life, they came up with a list of about 70 items. If you ask the same in the year 2000, 100 years later, they write down a list of things that they could possibly want or feel they needed. The list is like in the hundreds, 500. There is so much more around us. We are probably the most prosperous generation, my generation, in human history. Somebody wisely said, money is like manure. Pile it up and it stinks. Spread it around, helps things grow. It's a nice image, isn't it? Next time you take cash out, just think it like, yeah, it's a bit of manure. If I hang on to it, it's going to stink. But if I give it and spread it and use it appropriately, it'll bless and help other things to grow. Hebrews 13 verse 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, because God has said, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. Well, Solomon dives on, goes on to talk about now a contrast to that, because all that glitters is not gold. I've seen another evil under the sun, chapter 6 verse 1. It weighs heavily on all of us, on all mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honour, so they lack nothing that their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy it. And others, strangers or foreigners, enjoy them instead. It's meaningless and it's a grievous evil. To have it all and not to notice it, not to be aware of it, and not to enjoy it. What a waste. What a waste. It's quite possible to be famous, wealthy, miserable. Look at the faces of the wealthy, Dale Carnegie said, millionaires seldom smile. Someone else asked the question, who are the happiest people on earth? They came up with four answers. Number one, the craftsman or the artist who is whistling because of the job that he has just done and he finds great satisfaction and joy in it. The tradesman, the craftsman, 
the architect who designs or builds something that is satisfying. Number two, a child playing and building sandcastles. They're happy. Not a care in the world. Number three, a mother who is bathing her baby at the end of the day after a very busy day, bathing the little one. And she is delighted because this little thing is going to go to sleep any second now. Or number four, a doctor is the fourth answer, who has been successfully engaged in some surgical process which has actually saved a life. There's happiness and joy and satisfaction, meaning for these. Not a single millionaire was listed. Not a single king, emperor or investor was done. An old man who was upset with life, he was cranky and irritable and he went to see his rabbi and he said to him, um, he wanted some help to get over his misery, his miserableness. The rabbi wisely said, I want you to come to the window and I want you to look out the window and tell me what you see. He goes to the window and he looks out and he sees people down in the street below and he sees cars coming and going, you know, animals playing and kids and so on. And then he says, that's very interesting, now come with me. And he says, I want you to go over there and stand and look in the mirror and tell me what you see. Looks in the mirror and he says, well, obviously I see myself. <clears throat> he says, isn't that interesting? You look through glass, plain glass, and you see people and objects and things and life going on. You look at a piece of glass that has some silver backing on it and suddenly anything you see is yourself. The difference between the window and the mirror is the silver on the back. Add a little bit of silver to your life and suddenly all you see is yourself. Smart rabbi. What's the solution to this dilemma? Having all of these possessions and stuff and things, and as I told you, what, three, four, whatever, a little while ago, I made a list of my possessions and I was shocked at how much I own of what God has blessed us with and really provided us for. And I encouraged you to do the same. Don't know if you have or not. But I remembered that in going through this again of how many shirts I have, how many shoes I have, how many, you name it, we have it. Um, and, you know, books would be the thing that I have the most of and I'm quite happy to lend those out to people. That's fine. But as of today, I'm now happy to lend out my shirts. So, Michael, if you need a lend of a shirt or something, then or shoes, or socks, or whatever. We have a lot of stuff. But life is not about stuff. Life is about living to please God and satisfy Him. And that's where Solomon gets to in this chapter, because he says, what's the solution to this joyless life where you have everything? Well, he said the answer is to live pleasing God. Um, it says in verse 2 that, uh, God is the one who gives enjoyment or he withholds it. Joy is found in a relationship with God. Living to please God, not ourselves, is going to result in joy. Happiness is the byproduct of knowing and seeking and pleasing God. That's what he's saying. George Mueller said, 90% of our difficulties in life will be overcome when you are willing to do whatever God wants you to do. 90% of the difficulties overcome. We were created to bring pleasure to God, Revelation 4.11. So living to please God will have the byproduct of bringing joy into your own life, like the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, joy, peace. He goes on to say, contrasting that, even if you live a long time, that's not the solution either. A man, verse 3, can have a hundred children, that's a lot of kids, that's a lot of noise, that's a lot of attention and busyness, a man can have a hundred children and live many years 
And yet, no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive a proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. The stillborn child comes without meaning, departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice over, but fails to enjoy his prosperity, we all go to the same place. So you see what he's contrasting, how he's thinking this through. He's saying, here is a man who is living, who is being successful and making money and being prosperous and so on, but not enjoying it. And it doesn't matter if he lives a long life, because if you're miserable now, then longer is just worse. A stillborn child is better off because the stillborn child has got no pain, no disappointment, no hurt, has never been frustrated by the circumstances of life. He's contrasting it. And this is that certainly under the sun perspective. So what's the solution? Well, verse 3 says that the person's soul is not satisfied with goodness because they don't notice it. So what they need to do is to notice the stuff that God has given them and to be thankful. We're so, we are so busy going through life and observing the bumps and the disappointments that we forget to be thankful for the blessings, for the good things that God has provided for us. We are to live looking up, not looking back, as he'll come in chapter 7 to say. Remember the 10 lepers who came to Jesus and he healed one of, all 10 of them and only one came back? 90% did not thank him. Well, that's, I think, where Solomon is pointing. Of Notice the stuff God has given you and find joy and satisfaction and be thankful to God. Be thankful. That's what we treat to our kids. We teach and train them. But when they receive something, and particularly what we do is when we receive something, if we like it, then we say thanks. What God is saying is when you receive something, say thanks. And then you'll be pleased with it. Change of perspective. Be grateful. Be thankful. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Try this this week. It says, give thanks to God in all circumstances. In all circumstances. Whatever's going on, be thankful to God. Even if it's bad things. God, I don't like this, but I know you're in control. And for that, I am thankful. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Okay, so you can... Have a lot and not enjoy it. You can live a long time and not enjoy it. And you can even labour intensely and not find satisfaction and fulfilment. He says, verse 7 and following, everyone's toil is for their mouth, yet their appetite is never satisfied. We all focus on the physical, not the spiritual. What advantage have wise over fools? What do the poor gain by knowing how to conduct themselves before others? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. This too is meaningless and a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named and what humanity is has been known. No one can contend against someone who is stronger, be that a stronger person or God himself or even death. The more the words, the less the meaning. How does that profit anything? For who knows what is good in a person during this life? God does. Who can tell them what will happen under the sun after they're gone? God can. Turn your eyes, live looking up, look to him. Um, instead of labouring just for the physical, also labour to look after yourself spiritually. So to summarise that very quickly, love God, uh, please God 
and you'll find joy in your life. Thank God and you'll find satisfaction within. And then put your soul first and live for God and you'll find fulfilment in all that you're doing. But people don't do that. People continue to live for the very thing that they're going to lose, for money. They make it the biggest thing in life, whether it's their career or whatever. This could be true of any movie person, celebrity or famous wealthy person. This person says, it's Raquel Welch, who is now 80 years of age. She says this, I have everything I've ever wanted. I have wealth, but I can't enjoy it. I have everything money can buy. I have brought everything I have ever wanted. And she says, I am no happier now than when I started. 80 years, married four times. Now, by herself. Got it all. Anything that money can buy, I've got it. But it's not satisfying. It doesn't fill the hole that's inside your heart. Only God can fill that. So Solomon is looking out at people and he's seeing those who are happy and those who aren't and he's realising that happiness has nothing to do with the amount of money you have in your bank account. It's got everything to do with an attitude towards life and particularly an attitude which is looking up, finding joy and satisfaction in what God has provided for you. That's where he's heading and wants to get to. Let's jump into chapter 7 very quickly. Um, here are seven ways to live a better life and I'm going to go very rapidly through this. In verse 1 he talks about it's better to have a good character, a good name rather than... And in chapter 7 he's contrasting. Not what makes us feel better but what is better for us is the contrast of how to have a better life. Um, Verse 1, he says, a good name is better than fine perfume and the day of death better than the day of birth. What does he mean? Well, perfume is pleasant, but it fades. My daughter, who was into fashion, has taught me, don't buy Odi, what is it? Odi White toy, Toilet for aftershave because it's mainly water. What you need to do is buy perfume. And it's heaps more expensive, but it lasts much more longer. But it fades. Even the very expensive perfumes fade. But a good name lasts. The way you live your life and your consistency, your integrity. And we care about what people think. So a good name is better than fine perfume. And the day of death is better than the day of birth. And what he means by that is there are two names... Two, two, two days where you get your name. The day you are born, the day you die, your name appears in the obituary list. When you are born in the world, as an old proverb or saying goes, when you are born into the world, you have pain, but the people around you rejoice. Glad that you have arrived. On the day of your death, live your life in such a way that when you die, the people around you will feel the loss and the pain and you will rejoice because you've lived your life well under God's lead. The day of your death is better than the day of your birth because you have not yet lived your life. Now you have lived your life. That's better. Think about that. He goes on, verse 2. He says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to a party, to go to the house of feasting. For death is the destiny 
of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Sometimes it's better to go to the crematorium than it is to go to the cinema. Why? Well, because death has a way of helping us think about life differently. He'll come back around this theme a couple of times. Um, <clears throat> we make different choices, better choices. We're reminded of our own mortality, that we're not here forever. So that changes our priorities on what we're going to do and what we're going to spend our money on and so on. Um, so in that sense, uh, the going to the house of mourning is better for us than going simply to the house of feasting. He goes on, verse 3. Frustration is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of the mourning, but the heart of fools is in the, in the house of pleasure. What does he mean? Well, the same thing. In sadness, we tend to reevaluate life. Laughter can be simply a cover-up. It's good while it's laughing, it's funny and it's enjoyable, but it doesn't change life and it doesn't change our perspective. Sometimes sadness gets our attention. As I've quoted sometimes at funerals, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but nothing more I learned from her for all she had to say. But I walked a mile with sorrow and never a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. It's quite true, isn't it? God has a way of getting our attention in sad times. And it's more difficult for us to listen to God during the good times. I think it's the Arabs who have the saying, all sunshine makes a desert. Barren and empty. All sunshine makes a desert. It's good to have storms and clouds and rain. Now that's what Solomon is saying. Sometimes the time of sadness is better than the time of laughter. Verse 5, he goes on and he says, we should welcome constructive criticism. It's better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. It's meaningless. Again, linking with the laughter, it accepts constructive, welcome constructive criticism because it does more good for us. It's, we don't like it, but it's a wake-up call. It corrects us. It helps us get on the right track. Whereas just singing the song of fools or engaging and entertaining ourselves is no benefit. It's like thorns under a pot that's just no lasting strength or heat is attached to it. It's not good for us. It's not better for us. Hmm. So being criticised doesn't feel good, but it is good for us, is what he's saying. Then he says, verse 8 and following, learn patience along life's journey. The end of a matter is better than its beginning and patience is better than pride. Patience to endure, to get to the end, to finish the task. Don't be quickly provoked in your spirit because there are irritations in life. Anger resides in the lap of fools. Don't say, why were the old days better than these? It's not wise to ask such questions. Don't live looking back. Don't live, you know, that was then, this is now. What are you doing now? Focus on that. Develop patience. Finish the task that is in that is before you. Finish the race. <clears throat> I've told you before, I have, I'll take 30, minute and a half to tell you this quick story. When I was a kid in high school, we had a lake in the Randra and we used to hold our annual uh, high school swimming events, uh, carnival down there. 
and I'm not a good swimmer, and I particularly wasn't a, a good swimmer when I was a kid. <clears throat> anyway, for some stupid reason this year, I must have been year eight, I got all brave and I decided to enter into the year eight, you know, heats. <clears throat> and I lined up on the, the, uh, the starting blocks and there was eight of us in eight lanes and they had to swim across the pool and it was about, I don't know, 150 miles, something like that. I don't know how far it was. Probably 50 metres, maybe even less than that. And uh, we dived in and I was off to an incredible start. I was, my arms were going like windmills. Talk about impressive. I was halfway across and I looked left and I couldn't see anybody and I looked right and I couldn't see anybody. I was in front halfway. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. It's what Solomon's saying. Develop patience along the way. Finish the journey. Well, the end of that story is that everybody else passed me in the second half of that thing because I started to tire and the windmill started to slow down and I was exhausted and I, everybody was out of the pool and I was still in the pool and I was still coming to the end. And when I got out, I learned a lesson. Don't go in public swimming events. <laughs> Thank you. Learn patience along the way. Um, and don't look back on the good old days either. That's a combination of bad memory and good imagination. Like I said, that's then. Don't live in the past. Live in the present. Even though it's true past was a lot better than the present. Verse 11, make wisdom your defence, he says. Wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing, benefits those who see the sun, those who are alive. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter, but the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. What's wisdom? Well, what is it, 25 times, 28 times in Ecclesiastes, Solomon's going to, has referred to wisdom. The book of Proverbs, he refers to it 125 times. What is it? Well, wisdom is really understanding and appropriating God's principles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. To know how to live right comes from revelation, comes from doing God's principles in our life. And he's saying that's a great defence for you to know how to live, what to do. It'll protect you against bad choices. And then finally, he says, verse 13 and 14, Put God at the centre of your life. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he's made crooked? When things are good, be happy, rejoice, be thankful. When things are bad, consider this. God made the one as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. Good times, from God. Hard times, from God. God knows what you need. God knows what you need to make you happy and God knows what you need to make you humble. God knows how to grow you and he'll give you good times and he'll balance your life and he'll give you struggles and trying times. Everything that comes into our life comes via his throne, it's father tested. Both are from God, either done or allowed and he's about a much bigger job of growing us and maturing us to be like him. That's Solomon's perspective that, he, that he's now going to head more into. Live life looking up, not under the sun. Follow the principles that God gives us in his word and seek to live lives that please him. If we please him, we have joy and satisfaction in our life. If we live thankfully, we'll find peace and contentment internally. If we look after our souls and put God first, then he will provide exactly what we need. 
These are the truths for us to meditate upon. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are many observations of life in this two or three chapters and many truths for us to appropriate. I pray that you would help us to filter, to reread, and to could you remind us of the truths or the principles that we need to be focusing on in our life, things we need to let go of, perspectives that we need to change, things that we need to start. Lord, help us to live looking up, to be thankful, to be joyful in all that you provide for us and to hold it loosely and responsibly and use it for your glory and your purposes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Dara, for the message.